You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And now that heart is beating fast, and that's the rhythm I can dance to. I'm mighty glad I've got a chance to, that one big heart that's beating fast. Tomorrow morning, let it rain. Tomorrow morning, let it pour. Tonight we're in the groove together. Ain't gonna worry about stormy weather. Gonna kick all trouble out the door. Beat out old trouble and drum. Beat out old trouble and drum. Beat out old trouble and drum. And kick all trouble out the door. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. Welcome to Radical Australian Community Radio 3CR. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. As usual, we've got an exciting, well, possibly exciting guest, Jill Horton. Hello, Jill. Hello. How are you? I'm, I'm extremely well. Nobody actually asks the presenter how they are. Normally, I'm supposed to ask you that, but I won't. Because I understand, <laughs> I understand you're just luxuriating on a balcony somewhere. Yeah, um, I live in Port Macquarie, and where my office is, I can look out over the Hastings River. Ah, well, we have a Hastings here in Melbourne, but it's one of those suburbs you don't talk about. It's for elderly, retired people like me. Now, Jill, look, uh, look, this is a simple little conversation. Oh, we've got bird life in the background. I like that. That's that's lovely. Uh, <laughs> look, uh Obviously, that you've got an accent there, but we'll go into that in a minute. Now, just to orientate our listeners, you don't have to answer this exactly. You can give us the decade if you want to. But what year were you born? I was born in 1966. 66. Okay, that makes you a relatively young person compared to me. And, um, and this is another question you may find a little bit difficult to answer, but uh, what's the first thing you can remember about being on planet Earth? That's a bit difficult. Um, let me think about that. All right. See, that's, that's the trouble. Um, yeah. It was playing outside in the snow. That's what, that's what I can re- with my sisters. That's not a very Australian memory. So where were you playing in the <laughs> snow? Um, well, I grew up in, in Collingwood, Ontario in Canada. About an hour and a half north of Toronto. You may find this very strange, Jill, but um, across the road from the studios of 3CR in Melbourne, one side is Fitzroy, and we're on the, you know, the good side, and on the other side is Collingwood, <laughs> believe it or not. So we have a suburb called Collingwood in Melbourne, obviously. So, 
Yes, it's named after the same place as my my town that I grew up in, mm. Um, mm. and named after uh, Lord Admiral Collingwood. Mm. Why did people keep naming things after Lord Admiral Collingwood? You got any idea where where he fits in? Um, he was a not that he was an explorer from a long time ago in Canada, but he was an explorer that went through the Great Lakes of Canada. And the town that I grew up in is, or was, a, sh- a very large uh, shipbuilding um, town. Mm-hmm. And so we had lots of ships that used to ply, because we didn't have roads, used to ply um, the Great Lakes. And so we had huge, hundreds of meter ships that used to bring all the cargo into into uh, different areas of Canada and the U.S. Right. So what was it like growing up as a small child in Collingwood in Ontario? It was pretty good because um, we had a lot of different cultures that moved there because of uh, the shipbuilding. And so we had a lot of Europeans. We had the Scottish people. Um, uh, we had the, a lot of Dutch and Germans as well um, that worked on the ship. So there were specialists from all over the world that used to work there. But I only really met, um, there was Italians too, I can remember, but I only met the children of the, the workers that worked on, on the uh, ships. So it was quite interesting because, you know, you'd have this ship at the end of the street in the middle of your town, and it would, you know, it would be there for months and sometimes a year. And then, at, um, when it was complete, we would have a large celebration because it it was the large employer for our our town, and they would launch the ship, and we would get off school to go and see the launching of the ship. And there were lots of different ways that they launched the ship. And you know, they used to break the champagne bottle, and the whole town would be around it. So it was pretty. It was pretty amazing childhood because not only did the the lake have um, these big ships coming in and out, they also um, was a tourist resort. Uh, so we used to get a lot of tourists going to the beaches around where I grew up. And in the winter time, we had Blue Mountain Ski Resorts. So we had a lot of different ski resorts um, right. because we had mountains there as well. Mm-hmm. So how long did you spend in Collingwood? Until I was about eighteen, uh, it was a it was quite a small town. I think around seven thousand when I when I was small, and then as I got to be a teenager, I was it was over ten thousand, and it was too small for me. I wanted to go see the world, um, so I finished high school and uh, booked a plane out to Calgary. And I had always wanted to go skiing in the Rockies, so I went and out to Banff, um, Alberta, and I went out there to work uh, for the ski resorts, but also I'm not sure whether you're aware of the big hotels, the Banff Springs Hotel yes. and the Shadow Lake Louise. Yes. So I go, went to work at one ski resort and two of the very large, historic, beautiful hotels that I guess you could say Mount Buffalo is a, a tiny version of that, Mount yes. Buffalo Chalet. Yeah, well, to my chagrin, I actually looked at the Banff Hotel, but didn't have enough money to actually check in. 
<laughs> which I think is a common experience for Australian backpackers when they used to go to Canada. <laughs> Definitely, because yeah. when I was working there in about 85, uh, I, it was about 400 $450 a night. Mm, that's right. <laughs> it, was, it was quite expensive, but it was an amazing thing to meet all these people um, Canadians all over, all over, um, from lots of different provinces used to come there to work, um, at the ski resorts, but also in the summertime, of course, it was beautiful. Um, so many tourists came from all around the world, um, specifically Japan at that point in time. Uh, and I also worked with heaps of Aussies as well. Mm. So, so is Banff Canada's Uluru? Without the spiritual uh, element to it. Banff? I, I don't know. Banff would be... I would... Well, no, maybe, I, maybe the I Gold can't. Coast? The Gold Coast or Noosa or Sunshine Coast? Well, no. not really because, no. you know, it's glorious. It's got bears and it's got, um, mm. you know, elk in the middle of the street and you don't have anything like that in Australia. I mean, I could compare it to some of the mountains like Mount Buffalo being a little version of it, um, Lamington National Park, which is up beside the Gold Coast, those kind of places where they're iconic. I don't think you've been to Central Australia. You get you get kangaroos, camels, donkeys. I have been. (laughs) I'm feeling a little bit offended here. (laughs) Obviously, we have a lot of deer Um, in Victoria. You know, yeah, but deer. I mean the the mountains are are more what it's like. So yeah. you well, know, look, look, I must admit, mountains. I must admit, you're right. You know, our mountains look like um, sand hills compared to your mountains. So you finished high school, and there was did you did you go anywhere else after high school, or did you just continue working in that area as a hospitality? Oh, well, I worked in hospitality and tourism, and. I guess after a couple of years working at a ski resort, um, I guess it's more a party atmosphere and skiing all the time, I thought, well, maybe I should think about a career. And I ended up going to back on, back down to Ontario and over to Toronto. And I actually studied travel and tourism um, in, in Toronto and started working as a, a travel agent. Right. In, so, in Canada. So, yes. Uh, in Canada, but of course that enabled me uh, to travel around the world um, because there was a lot back then. There was lots of opportunity um, to go on trips nearly every weekend. Mm. So I went. I spent a lot of time in the U.S. Um, I uh, used to go to Hawaii. I I went to Central South America. I went over to Europe, of course, and spent a lot of time and. It gave me an opportunity to go work in Vancouver, which is an amazing place to live as well. Um, and I worked in the travel and tourism industry out there managing travel agencies who specifically sold cruises, which was that was the, um, quite a long time ago. So it was when cruises were for very kind of rich and affluent people, but also uh, to spe- specialist places like Malta, and um, uh, taken lots of groups um, on cruises as well as uh, down to Mexico, special places down in Mexico. We used to specialize in short uh, cruises, and we used to escort 
uh, groups of uh, cruisers um, to different places in the U.S., and then we would put them on the ship to come back to Canada, or we would take them over to Malta, or we would take them down in, uh, as well, Mexico. So it was not just a travel agency. We're also a tour company that created their, our own packages, and we used to book a whole ship. So at that point in time, the largest ship was about 1,200 passengers, so we used to fill the, fill the ships. Right. What did you learn about people as you travelled around the world? You seem to have travelled extensively, you know, South America, the United States, Europe, Central America. What did you learn about people? Did you? Was it um, well, I guess I, I learned that there was a diversity that I hadn't met in Ontario, and so it gave me an appetite to meet people from different cultures and enjoy their their culture and learn about it more. And as I went more and more to places, I, I was able to, of course, when my clients would come to me and say, I want to go here, I'd go, I know where you need to go. You know, I, I had a, a really great memory um, for everything that was important to book a, a trip. So I did a lot of specialist, very large trips for people, whether it be to Russia in the middle of, um, you know, uh, very specialist uh, tours that they used to do or sending people to Reunion Island or, yeah, so I, I just loved meeting people and uh, as soon as I would meet their culture, it was, it was amazing. And, and so that, that travel was just, you know, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, and it actually, I guess, spurred me on to think, well, I think I need to hit the road from Canada and start traveling myself long term. Long term. I like yeah. that. Long term. <laughs> so obviously by now you had a little bit of a uh, rucksack full of uh, dollars and you're willing to strike yeah. out. Yeah. So where did the- uh, Well, I, I did a lot of, uh, of course I could do a lot of planning. I could do a lot of thinking and, I, and you know, I had the, I, I managed travel agencies, so I had a lot of skill mm-hmm. set. To be able to do that, and so I decided that I was going to go over to Europe and and have a look over there. And I and I went over and I spent about a year and a half traveling around Europe, working in the UK in London uh, for uh, P and O Travel, and then um, on my off time as a contractor, I would travel around to different areas to to see see them, I guess, in a really in depth uh, way. So is there any part of Europe, any little hidden village we can descend on en masse when the COVID-19 restrictions are lifted that you'd recommend? Well, Malta being one of them is amazing. <laughs> um, the Maltese people are so welcoming. Yeah. The food's good. Uh, everything about it's amazing. But that was quite a long time ago. But I really loved it. I loved uh, Czech Republic as well, but that's become more and more more touristy, I guess you could say. Yes. I, yeah, but I traveled, I guess, like the backpackers that came from Australia and New Zealand and South Africa that would come over for what they call now as a gap year, or mm. people used to come for quite a number of years. So I started to make friends with people from Australia and New Zealand and South Africa, mm. which was... Um, I guess you could say, because I was working in the travel industry and I felt that, okay, I've done Europe and where's next? 
Well, be, before we move on, I'm going to ask you a trick question to see whether you're a real, whether you're a traveller or a tourist. Did, okay. Did you go to Gonzo in Malta? Uh, Gozo? Yeah. Uh, no. Ah! We couldn't, we couldn't because the, the boats um, weren't able to go to the island because it, it was like... Um, these gigantic seas. So, no, we were scheduled to go there. We are only there for probably a, um, a seven-day trip from uh, from Vancouver. So, uh, by the time it lifted, it was the day that we were flying back. So, well, no, we couldn't extend the trip. No, well, between you and me, didn't miss much. Okay. <laughs> it's just a little I actually far. loved live, meeting the... Uh, the Maltese, but also the Libyans. I thought that yes. was amazing. You know, mm. like I didn't know anything about Africa at the time. Mm. Yeah, so I met a lot of Libyans as well oh. when we were there. Yeah. So yes. every time I traveled, I met people from different countries, and that was like, okay, where's next? Like, I mean, I was filing all this information together mm. to go, okay, so where's next? So Because I would start interviewing people and finding out where they were from and where what's the best places to go in the country that they're from, so. Mm. So what did you notice about the human family similarities? Obviously, you've got uh, knowledge that most of us haven't because we haven't travelled as extensively as you, but what did you notice about the human family? Commonalities, Uh, differences? I mean, we tend to think of differences, not commonalities. Well, I actually found most people hospitable. Um, Anywhere you go, if you're lost or... You can't speak the language. Um, I really, other than a couple of, oh, I guess you could say missteps when I went down to Africa, (laughs) where I got way out of my comfort zone, um, I always found there was always people there, even in strife, even when I was, um, I had all my money stolen once. (laughs) Mm. It happens, it happens. Yeah, that I always felt that um, I was never afraid. Mm. I was traveling all by myself. I didn't feel that I needed someone to come with me. I felt that I had enough skill and I was trying to be safe enough that, um, it, you know, if I ever had questions, I would ask people. And, um, yeah, always people would lend a hand. No matter where I've gone, it's always been the same. And, I, you know, and that's, that's probably the reason why that... It, all this traveling has led to me appreciate people from so many different cultures and religions that that it just amazes me. And there's you know there's no end to to being able to meet people mm. um, if you're able to travel or if you open your eyes and actually when you meet people that are in your own space or when you go down to Sydney or wherever you're traveling to, they, all of a sudden I'll hear an accent and I'll say, oh, you know. You know, I, I hear a bit of an accent, and yeah, so it leads me down another... I I just love meeting different people. It's amazing. Yeah, so um, what parts of Africa did you turn up in? Morocco. That's not Africa. It is. What do you mean? I saw That's the just, <laughs> anything south of Sahara that I'm talking about, not north of oh, Sahara. Oh, okay. No, I didn't go south of the Sahara because... Right. I had a, all my trips were late, were 
were um, I needed to see a country well. I wasn't going to do, you know, fly in, fly out, go to a whole bunch of cities and say that I've gone to a whole bunch of countries. Right, right. Yeah, I had to do it well. So Morocco, one, you know, I went down there. I took a ferry over. There was not a woman to be seen. (laughs) No, that's right. (laughs) That would be right, yes. Do you know, have you heard about the case, I think it's Dr. Osman, who's... um, uh, a dual Saudi Arabian citizen and Australian citizen, and he's currently in detention in Rabat, and he's about to be deported back to Saudi Arabia for criticising the government? No. No, this is something that's just uh, broken in the last uh, few days, so it's um, something we should keep an eye on because if he gets deported back, he's going to be in a lot of hot water. You know, his wife was making a... Uh, Entreaty on his behalf uh, through SBS yesterday. So, yeah, this is something we should keep... I think our listeners should keep an eye on. I mean, we've heard about the professor in Myanmar, but uh, this this he's been in prison now for three weeks and it seems to have uh, gone under everybody's radar. Mm. Mm. Now, so this sounds like an idyllic lifestyle, you know? You're travelling the world, you're not getting into trouble, you've got a job... So when did it all go wrong? Oh, it didn't go wrong. I just kept I mean, you're in Australia. It must have gone wrong somewhere. No, no. <laughs> I went to, I went to, I thought, okay, I've done Europe. I'm going to go to Southeast Asia. Yes. And I'm going to go and visit my friends down in um, Australia and New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And so that led, and I was living with uh, Kiwis and Aussies when I was living in the UK because there's no Canadians that go and live there. I don't know what goes on. <laughs> but anyway, so I, I, I went down to uh, Southeast Asia for a while and traveled around Malaysia and Thailand. And then I thought, okay, I can get a working holiday visa in Australia. And then I'm going to go to New Zealand afterwards, after my, my first visa expires. So I, I uh, flew into Sydney. What year was that? In 1995. Right. Okay. What was 25 that? years ago. What were you going to pick fruit or what were you going to do? <laughs> oh, well, I'd, um, I'd nannied a bit when I was in Canada. Uh, when I, sometime, well, for, one of our, for one of our cabinet ministers, they like nannies because they're tax deductible. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get me started with that. <laughs> <laughs> No, no. I um, I came on a working holiday visa to to Sydney, and um, oh, this is a strange story. That I I stayed with an Australian family, a man that I'd actually was roommates with in in London. I mm. stayed with his his beautiful family um, outside uh, outside of Sydney. And then I bought a bus ticket to go all the way around, except for WA was a bit too far. But I bought a bus ticket to go all the way around from uh, Sydney down up through the center and then through Queensland and then back down. And I went down to uh, Melbourne, mm-hmm. did some nannying down there because I, I just wanted kind of temporary work. So I'd do a couple of months of, of uh, nanny work while parents were overseas. And then I was um, offered, because I could drive in the snow, a job at Mount Buffalo Chalet ah. as the nanny for the for the lessees of of Mount Buffalo Chalet. And I went yeah. there and remained as their nanny for a year and a half. Yeah, I've always had a dream of 
having a nanny when I had kids, but that <laughs> it's finished. We never had the money for a nanny. But but under Australian law, it is tax deductible, so I can imagine a lot of uh, CEOs out there are taking advantage of uh, you know having a few nannies. You need more than one, don't you? No, they just needed me. I was like, I don't know. I think you you described me not nanny slash Jillaroo. I was oh, like right. Jill of Jill. Jill of all trades, I yeah, was. Yeah. It was like, Jill, we need more flowers for the chalet. Jill, we've, we've got you. You need to pick up a truck part down in, in yeah. Albury. And, and so yeah. it was an amazing job. Yeah. I got to go with the kids to the horses. We used to bushwalk. We used to kayak. Yeah. We used to go on trips to Sydney as a family. I was part of the family, of course. And business business meetings uh, I was I attended with with the kids I used to be with them so they could travel and so it was pretty good and and you could live on the mountain I had my own place to live we were fed we could eat in the dining room um, and it, Mount Buffalo Chalet and the mountain is just one of those places that has kept me here for 25 years what do you mean, twenty-five years? Well, you've been—you were only there for a year well, and a half. What I happened? Met, I met a—I met a Frenchman on the on. Oh um, no, Apple no! I said to Kelly, the producer, when she told me <laughs> that you were in Australia, you're Canadian. I said it must be love. I said no <laughs> Canadian would immigrate to Australia unless it's love. Is that what happened? Is that what happened? Is yeah. It? No. So I met—I met a Frenchman who had lived here. Um, I don't know, maybe 10 years, and uh, fell in love, and we both worked at the chalet, um, and then we decided that we needed to travel around Australia, because I hadn't really seen too much. The bus trip didn't just cut no. it. <laughs> no, it doesn't cut it. When you, when you were talking about the bus trip, I was thinking about, I, we used to prefer to hitchhike. And, uh, yeah, I ended up hitchhiking. <laughs> yeah, the, the bus, oh, the nausea. Yeah. The, the boredom and the people in the bus. <laughs> yeah, so we bought we, we bought a Bedford van and kitted it out and started to travel around Victoria, New South Wales, and made our our way up to um, Queensland. Sounds like um, I don't know about this Queensland. You went to Queensland. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, um, we. Uh, yeah, and I looked for work up there. We decided that, oh, this looks good, Sunshine Coast. Yes, yes. And what did you get up to in Noosa? What did you both work at? Um, my ex-husband <laughs> is, uh, is, a, is a stonemason, so he was working on a lot of the multi-million dollar beautiful yep. houses yep. and laying flooring and stonework and creating mm-hmm. waterfalls and people's houses and mm. tools mm. and things like that. So that's what he did. And, mm. and um, I uh, worked in property management on the main street, Hastings Street of Noosa. Uh, uh, Hastings yeah. again? Hastings Street. Yep, Hastings. Yeah. Hastings River, yep. Hastings Street seems to be following you through your life. Yep. Now this seems yeah. this seems a pretty uneventful type of life. It's the type of thing that... It has. You know, oh, up, up to then, you know, I mean, travel, good job... You must have an amazingly uh, accommodating personality. I think I would have strangled the little buggers if I was a nanny. I haven't, <laughs> got that, I haven't got that type of... You must have an amazing accommodating personality, I reckon. No, there no? was only two children. It was a dream job. Was it? Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. So oh, well, how long so did this... That, 
footloose period oh. lasts for? Oh, well, I think it, it lasted about three years t- till it came to a screeching halt when my husband said he didn't want to be married. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a bit of a surprise, yeah. Oh, well, I, I, by then, been, I, I'd given up all my career in Canada, everything that I own there, and he said, I don't want to be married, so I just went, okay, um, <laughs> let me think about this. Yes. And I just went, okay, buy van, go traveling again. So um, I just uh, took off and went to the northern rivers of uh, New South Wales and just started traveling around, thinking about what I was going to do, with, because by then I was a citizen. So, um, what, you're, I, one of, you're one of us now? Yeah, I'm an we, Aussie. We, we, really we, we allow Canadians to become Australian citizens. <laughs> That's strange. Yep. When did that happen? Uh, well, did you go to the citizenship ceremony? I did, and this wonderful mayor, Bob Abbott, I think his name was, up in Noosa, gave me a tree which I killed. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah, but I was I really wanted to become an Australian. Everything that I did while I was living here, because I was going to become Australian, was... Uh, you know, I tried to change my language. I learned about the geography, the history, the uh, uh, history wars, you name it. You learned I decided it. to do it. Yep, right, I decided right. to do it, and that led me to want to go to university. Right. I'm just going to ask you a question because to find out whether you're a real Australian or not. Do you have a discreet tattoo anywhere on your body? No. Well, sorry, you're not one of us. <laughs> Okay, that's okay. <laughs> that's the way it goes, you know. <laughs> You've got to have a little tattoo somewhere. You know, if you're a bloke, you have a big tattoo, although some women are now having big tattoos, but a uh, little tattoo on your ankle, nothing like that? No, no, no. 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 What, what, no. Oh, I'm a bit disappointed. I don't think you're one of us, but you're a pretend Aussie. That's okay. <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. I'm pretty pretty Australian other than, um, well, uh, well, how shall I say this? I went, when I went to university to study to be an, uh, a teacher, mm-hmm. um, I, and I guess I didn't, felt that I didn't know enough history, so I wanted to focus on history, so I started to learn about a lot of the Australian history of Aboriginal people and the colonization, um, if you want to call it that, uh, of Australia, and I started to become horrified that the history in Canada was similar, but possibly worse, because it was, it was hidden, it was really covert. Hmm. And my son didn't know about the history, hang and he on, wasn't hang taught on, it in hang school. On, hang on, hang on, hang on. Son, son. Oh, where are the, son, the child? <laughs> yes, yes. Well, oh, you didn't yeah. steal him from uh, one of the families you were looking after. No, 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 no. no I had my, I had my son, and then uh, we uh, had. I had my son at the time, and we headed down the coast after the the marriage didn't work. Right. So, so that's a bit. Yeah. Oh. Well, that's unfortunate, isn't it? You know, you have a son, you have an idyllic relationship, and the husband says, I don't want to be married. Oh, that's okay. No, it's all right. It's all right. It happens to a lot of people, I can assure you. It happens to a lot of people. So what did you do with this um, education um, degree? Well, I didn't fit in the box of education, um, specifically with working for the Department of Education and, and... 
I, I guess I gravitated towards human rights and mm-hmm. the rights of the child in school, and I felt that kids that were vulnerable or had disabilities were being left by the wayside. And, of course, that, when you point that out to schools or teachers or whatever, they don't really agree with that or they don't want, want to you to highlight that. And so after a four-year degree, I felt that I wasn't going to actually be able to do what I wanted to do. I wanted to, and through education, enable children to make a difference in whatever their um I guess standing was in the community to be able to be able to go to university if they wanted to or TAFE or whatever, to have more opportunity than they would have had. And I felt that I wasn't going to be able to do that because of the constraints of education like I see it in Australia. And so I started to study social work, and that is what brought me to discover not not only a lot of more history around the mistreatment of different cultures and or um, people of certain religions, but I did some research on um, people that were going to end up being, uh, I guess, uh, refugees because of the, uh, the way the environment was going, and I did a paper on that, but I also did did a lot of research on the background of Indigenous uh, people, uh, as well as um, refugees that have come to Australia, mm. by boat specifically. Mm. Can I just ask you a question, a little bit esoteric, but I think it's central to the type of work you're doing. As far as human rights are concerned, as you realise, there's uh, really very few human rights in the Australian Constitution, almost nil, What's the Canadian Constitution like in, in, in regards to human rights? Oh, we have a Bill of Rights. You have a Bill of Rights. And that was with um, when you gained independence or that come later on? Um, I don't remember the history of the year mm. that it came, but it came shortly after. Like everything mm. seemed to roll a lot quicker than Australia. Australia has really put the brakes on to any type of... Um, Right, rights acknowledgement, and and of course stripping it away as much as possible is is the way I guess I would I I see it. Mm. Well, that's right. When you look at the Australian Constitution, the only rights you have is the freedom of religion and the rights to just compensation if the state takes your land. There's nothing else. So, what type what type of human rights are enshrined in the Canadian Constitution? Well, there are all the rights that are. From the 1948 <laughs> convention, right? right. Convention rights. Yeah. Um, I, I do have to say, though. I mean, they're not. Of course, they're not. They're exact. Very similar. That not similar, but I guess the history of Indigenous people or First Nation people in both countries is that they don't have the rights that they should have. But of course, Canadian in Canada, the First Nations people have more rights than here. Um, you know they've got treaties, they've got land rights, they've got a lot, they've got a lot more rights. So mm. that that would be the difference that they that I would see. Um, and but you know I mean the, the, the rights of of refugees in in Canada, we people do not have to protest for for refugee rights 
in Canada. It's not a a thing. So so if somebody turns up in Canada as a refugee or an asylum seeker, uh, they're not termed illegals. Well, how shall I say this? One of the men from Manus Island, when they were going to deport him back, he's Rohingya. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the most probably persecuted people in the world. They were going to deport him back to uh, My- Myanmar. Um, he heard that he was going to be deported. He jumped on a boat, ran away, uh, went to the Solomon Islands, hit Fiji. Um, someone enabled him to do that, but he was able to get to Hong Kong, fly to Toronto, and he claimed refugee status at the airport. A man took him and fed him from immigration because he didn't have any money, and he is on his way to becoming a Canadian citizen. He was he was found to be a refugee. He uh, was granted asylum. He's studying at the University of Toronto, and there is going to be shortly, in the in the latter part of this year, a book on his story. Right, right. So that that that'll, that'll, that tells you exactly of the difference in rights mm-hmm. between the two countries. So, when did you first start being active in this field? Was it was it as a consequence of a specific uh, situation that occurred in this country? A spe- yes. Um, well, I, I did a lot of background uh, research when I was at, at university, but um, there was five years ago, maybe a little bit more than five years ago, when there was a um, there was a protest, and I don't know exactly what the protest was about, but it was about refugee rights in um, the lower house um, down in Canberra. And at the time, um, there was a, a group called WACA, and that, I can't remember what, the, what their acronym means, but WACA uh, glued their hands to the handrail of the, um, in, the, in Parliament, and it created uh, where the Parliament had to be shut down. And around the same time, they I filled the pools in front of Parliament with blood, yeah, so, color, like mm-hmm. red, mm. and um, so I went on to WACA's Facebook page and said, you know, this is this is epic because, I mean, these guys have been here, so that was 2016, they had been over in Manus and Nauru for three years, and it's the first kind of where the public of Australia kind of, and the media actually highlighted it more than I'd ever seen it before. Um, there had been the deaths of, of um, a number of people, uh, one that was murdered, but other than that, it let um, really the public know that that there were people that weren't happy with what was going on, and it really highlighted it. And one of the guys on Manus saw my, post, uh, my comment, and he went, Hi, I'm there. I'm in Manus. And so I started chatting with him, and then it led to me meeting online um, on Facebook and Messenger and WhatsApp to talk to them, video call with them, and get to know the real situation of what was going on there. I could see by video call what it was looking 
like because they were allowed their phones by then and the gates had been open so they were allowed to leave and they could go out into the town. They weren't allowed to leave Manus, but they could go in the town. And and then I felt that because there was such a block for journalists and, and information coming from offshore, Manus specifically, because I'd come in contact with the guys that were over at Manus Island, that I felt that I needed to go there. Within within two months, I felt that I needed to really see it. So um, that was the next step, and I, and I flew there a couple of months later in March. I I think it was between December and March, I, I, I went to Manus Island for two weeks to, to meet the people, to go and see what was, what was being done as a citizen of Australia um, in my name, really. That's right. So did, you, did anybody uh, kind of block your activities in, in Manus or were you just basically oh. free to do what you liked? No, you're not. So, so, so sadly, there's lots of people that have been deported or blocked from getting a visa or on arrival. If you mention the word Manus, you would just be turned around and, and denied an entry visa. So I already knew the history. I'd done lots of research on how to go there. I went by myself, and I knew um, So uh, a friend of mine from... From Tasmania that I met introduced me to a friend of hers that lived over in, in Port Moresby, and he'd been there since 75, since independence, and, and so I had an invitation by him to go to uh, P&G, and so by invitation I was allowed to apply for a visa, and I was accepted, but I did not tell anyone that I was going there. I did not tell immigration when I arrived that I was going to Manus Island. So I just booked a separate ticket and I flew to Manus, right. but it was under the cover. You couldn't no. you couldn't blatantly say that you were going to go to Manus. You well, had to lie. No, that's what I wanted to wanted people to understand. We you know they think we've got a free media and we got right of travel Definitely and all that not. stuff. No, that's what I want people to understand. So, how did you go about your activities on Manus, and were you well? And were you uh, thought- stopped in any way? Well, yes. I I I um I was not going to hide like a lot of the other people that had gone there to meet people and get to see what was going on. And of course, you take a lot of goods with you, um, things that they can't buy there because it's such a uh, tiny island. It's not a tiny island, but it's a tiny place to get resources. So we would take a lot of things. Um, so I. You know, met lots of Manusians when I was there, got to know them. I was not going to go and hide in my room because immigration may come across me. So I went and I met lots of locals. I went and did, uh, they celebrated uh, Women's International Women's Day. I went in their parade with them. I went to schools. I met with environmental people that were really concerned about what was going on with the water rising, with pollution, um, and then I met the guys. I went over to the RPC where they were held. I took a boat right to there. I went around to where the naval base was at the back of the RPC where the men were being held. Mm-hmm. And we weren't allowed to go inside where the gates were, but I could go onto the property. Um, and I could go on to the outskirts of it because there was a little village that was around it. So I did as much research as I could in discovering what it was like. I was interviewing um, locals. I was talking to the guys. 
finding out what the experience really was for them as well, uh, how they were feeling. They, by then, were able to come and go into town, but they were still, you know, they were still not allowed to get on a plane and go to Port Moresby or go anywhere else. Um, and so I guess I got the true what was going on. I didn't feel that I needed to go to the media or anything like that because it wasn't worth it at the time. And um, I can't, media, after about a, a week, immigration discovered me and interviewed me, took a photo of my passport and said, you shouldn't be here. Why are you here? Lots, you know, interrogation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I just, what's wrong? I can come and visit here. This, uh, I'm going out to an island every day. I was taking the, the, the guys that I knew. We were going to an island because they didn't have money, so I would take them to an island so they could go rest and relax and see other places because um, their other islanders were quite friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the conflict and attacks and robberies and um, happened in Lorengal, the town, quite drug-affected, alcohol problems. There was, you weren't safe at nighttime. Um, so we went to other places, and, and we just did what we could to, you know, have some joyful times. I had beautiful lunches. The guys cooked lunch and then, and then brought it into town, and we had lunch together. Um, and I just got to know what was going on, and I, I felt that that was my duty as being a citizen, and I really needed to know. And so it led me on a big trip um, that uh, I felt that, because no one was going, they were just starting to go to the U.S., and I knew that that, they said 1250, and there was 3,000 that were actually on those islands at first, and some of them, of course, over 1,000 are here, but Mm -hmm. I felt there's no way that all these people are going to get free. The Australian government, that is as it is right now, is not going to offer them asylum. They are not going to offer them permanent residency here, and I, I need to figure out how I can do it. And you know what? I couldn't marry them all. Right. <laughs> <laughs> to take them to Canada? Right. Well, um, you, could, you, could do, you could do... We that Australia wasn't an option. <laughs> no, you could have done a reverse harem, but it's all right. <laughs> yeah, so it, uh, it, there was only one of me, and I couldn't bring them over one by one. It would take too long. So That's right. I... Yeah, so, so I what, actually... So you went back to Australia? Yeah, eventually. I went back to Australia. And did you think yeah, about it? To, did you think... What did you, what, what, when you got back, what did you think? What did you think you could do? I went back to Australia. I started connecting with lots of other people. Um, a man from Kabul uh, earlier had introduced me to a Canadian who I didn't know, and he said, I think you need to meet this guy, and his name is Stephen Watt, and Stephen Watt, um, since... 2015 had been sponsoring Syrians and Iraqis um, from the Middle East to Canada on the Groups of Five sponsorship program. And so I kind of said, Stephen, I want you to help me. And so I taught, you know, he had to learn about what was going on in Manus and Nauru. And I tell you, when anyone from another country figures out that what we have done to these people, killed them, and, and not offered them asylum and processing like they should have been here and deported them, and um, he was horrified. He was, he was like, I can't believe this. 
and everyone that I meet that I talk to that are from overseas, especially in Canada, they're horrified at what we've done to these people because their mental health and their, their, the physical neglect that they've experienced is just horrific. Mm. And so he felt committed, and we started to fundraise and um, uh, search for sponsors to sponsor them one at a time. Mm. So how successful has that campaign been for you? There's two there arrived in 2019. The process is long. Mm. Um, from submitting the application, the first guys got over there from Manus. One flew from Brisbane in 2019 and one through, flew from Port Morrissey. And they've been there a well, year and a half now. And um, it was 15 months, their process, that they had to wait, plus the time that it took for us to fundraise as well. Mm. Um so and what so, does what does the fundraising? What are you fundraising for? Is it airfares? We're fundraising for their first year. The no fees. There's no government fees. There's no visa fees. No nothing. Mm-hmm. There's. It's just sixteen thousand five hundred Canadian to sponsor someone, and that sixteen thousand five hundred is their first year of financial support. And then the group of five that we find that sign up to be a sponsor group support them for that year and they resettle them exactly the same as when you move to another country you need a bank account you need a place to live you need to study or you need to get a job and so they support you like a safety net when you get over there and so that's that's the canadian program that's been around 45 years and and that's what we've done and steven sponsored over a hundred people to canada two only from Manus that have arrived there, but we've got a, a lot more in the pipeline right. that our applications are sitting with the Canadian government. bit of a hiccup because COVID has stopped the flights for them to fly over, so we're waiting until they allow refugees to fly back into uh, Canada. But I am still um, fundraising probably on a monthly basis for a new person, um, Mm. Um, whether so, they be in detention or on Manus or Nauru. So, so how do you go about fundraising and um, how can, if any of our listeners are interested, how can they assist? Well, the fundraising is, uh, I guess I started uh, my own, I've done, I've done six my own in the past six months. And I just, you know, I've developed a um, a group of people that I have a newsletter that I update them on what's going on with detention with the people that we are trying to sponsor. And I send it out every month, I guess you could say. And I've just grown that and it's it's a ripple effect where people have come on board and they learn about what I've done. I'm not in really in the media. Um, I've had uh, a story with SBS, but there hasn't been a, one with ABC and one with my local newspaper, but it, I'm growing it, you know, just organically, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. When I meet people, I say to them, you know, can you promote my, my fun, latest fundraiser? I'll email you it, and then they're on my email list. And that's how I do it. But I have gone to groups and asked them whether they can help. But, um, you know, that that's a more difficult thing. So I'm always looking at to find new people that can help promote my, my fundraisers. And so I guess the fundraiser takes from the first one took a month and one took six 
days, right. one took two weeks, one yes. took a month, you know, yes. so it all depends. And so I just promote them on Facebook, I email people, yeah. But how, how, how any listeners to the program are interested in um, becoming involved? Is there oh, a process? Yeah. That's what I need, that's what I'm asking. The process? The well, process, yes. Well, they just need to get in touch with me. How do they do that, Jill? You're in Port Macquarie and this program okay. goes everywhere. I'm, okay, well, I'm Jill Elizabeth Horton, Jill Elizabeth Horton, normal spelling, if you could understand that, E-L-I-Z-A-B-E-A-T-H and J-I-L-L and Horton, H-O-R-T-O-N, on Facebook, and that's the easiest way to find me, but um, I've got an email address and a telephone number. I'm pretty easily, and I've I've spoken on the radio several times, and I speak with groups to talk about what, what, what I do as well, whether it be a refugee group or a library in a community. I've done lots of different promoting of... of um, I guess learning it more about about these refugees that came by boat. Mm. Is there another way that I could give my information? We'll put it on the web page, but uh, if you, if you're happy to divulge your email and telephone number, we're quite happy for you to sure. do it. Off you go. I have, and then, I have refugees. I have people contacting me from all over the world. Uh, so if we can get a few supporters from Victoria or the rest that of Australia. That would be lovely. Okay, well, go ahead. Tell us, and but we will also put it on the, on the web page. So there's the content. It's, my telephone number is 0422-619-199. And my email address is Jill Elizabeth Horton, and I'll spell it, J I L L E L. I-Z-A-B-E-T-H-H-O-R-T-O-N at gmail.com. You realise, Jill Elizabeth Horton, that we've changed the law in this country, that we can strip you of your Australian citizenship. You know that? No, you can't. I haven't done a criminal activity. Exactly, isn't it interesting? It's all yeah. above board. I know. I, 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 I'm all above board, and I know that Peter Dutton could try and strip me out of my citizenship uh, because I'm well. helping. But he, he would probably give me a tick of approval because I'm getting rid of the problem that he has yes. and taking them safely over to Canada. And our for, Amir um, that is in Toronto right now, He, I went to the airport in Brisbane. Immigration was very happy for him to be getting on that flight and going to another country. I'm sure they are. You should, I think you should bill Peter Dutton's office, Border I Force. I would love Peter to pay $20,000 per well, person. Well, well I, think, I think you should enter into negotiations with them and say, look, we're doing this for you, you know, cough up. It's it's a lot cheaper than whatever sixteen billion dollars, or on yeah. Nauru right now, it's right. ten thousand per person per day. Yes, yes, it's amazing. A lot of people have made a lot of money out of a f- very few people. Or, mm. or our our people in detention is three hundred forty six thousand dollars per person per year, mm. and we have, well, Australia has over fifteen hundred. 
people in detention, but our refugees from offshore from 2013, there is, mm, I'm guessing, around 150. There could be less because we are so lucky that Peter Dutton gave visas to people yesterday mm. and the day before. Mm. Now, all I can say, Jill Elizabeth Horton, I'm going to uh, apologise for claiming you're not a real Australian. That's okay. I don't have a tattoo. <laughs> no, but you are a real Australian. You're actually more real than most of us because most Australians aren't doing what you do. And unfortunately, uh, there are still a significant number of people in this country who agree with the government policies. That's why they get re-elected. And uh, hopefully uh, things will change and people like you uh, are able to change people's minds. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. Uh, the program is going to be podcast on 3cr.org.au so you can link that to uh, your website so people can learn more about you if you wish. If you think the interview's crap, well, you can just delete it, okay? <laughs> but uh, No, that would be amazing because, you know, we just had yesterday... Um, no, two days ago, where Manir, one of the men that I fundraised $20,000 for, he is free in the community, and we will have his application done within the next week, and it'll be submitted, and he is going to go to Canada. So we've got amazing news that we've had this week. So thank you for everyone listening. Um, if you can, be a friend of mine on Facebook or help me with fundraising, that would be amazing because I still we still have 300 people that would love to go to Canada. But I don't have that list, but I, I do mine one at a time. Right. Well, look, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I think Australia has actually become a better country by having you here. And uh, sometimes it takes the outsider to teach us what is right. So thank you very much. And all the best in your efforts, and hopefully a number of our listeners will uh, friend you on Facebook, Jill Elizabeth Horton, and uh, assist you with what you're doing. All the very best, and thank you for uh, appearing on Radical Australia. Wonderful. Thank you. Bring me shelter, I will not harm you. Bring me shelter, please. Bring me shelter, I will not harm you. I would shelter you. People would do anything for their families. It could happen to anyone anytime. Somebody in France, somebody in England basically sat down with a ruler and just drew lines on maps. There are many different ethnic and religious groups that have been divided across borders, and this has caused a significant amount of conflict. There are a lot of people who need safety. It is really cruel for a country like Australia to have policies that are focused only on pushing people away. What we're seeing is a number of people that remain in a state of limbo. And when non-sustainable land use combines with climate change, the crisis of refugees... I wasn't able to go and play with children. I had to go and really be an adult from a very young age. I think that's something that a lot of migrant children can relate to. Really, it was a dream for me to reunite with my family. I was just praying and hoping that that day will come one day. I think it's very important for people to understand that people have their own dreams as well and they're wanting to change the world with everybody else. Refugee Radio, 855 AM, 3CR.
And Refugee Radio airs every Sunday morning at 10am on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.